All right, good morning. Well, we were starting a journey today in the uh, gospel, the gospel, it's not the, it is the gospel, right? Uh, the book of Jonah, <laughs> still thinking about the gospel of John here. All right, I'm going to move this thing out. Everyone's staring at me. Hey, that worked right there. That's all right, Brian, that'll work. Yeah, that'll work. That'll hang there, I guess. I just don't like all this stuff in front of me. Thank you, sir. <laughs> well, I'm Chris, uh, pastor, one of the pastors here at uh, at Bethesda. We're glad that you're with us. Um, like I said, we're going through the book of Jonah today, so if you're new with us, welcome. This is a great time to be with us. Uh, it is our, our kind of missions conference coming up, and we decided to kind of expand that uh, through a five-week period of time. And so we'll be celebrating our own missions conference in the middle of, uh, of this series, and so we'll be going through the book of Jonah here for five weeks. Let me, uh, let me pray for us as we get started. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that no matter where we are in the Bible, no matter what text we are in, that we know that you will speak to us because your word is living and active, and it is sharper than the two-edged sword. And you also tell us, God, that it is inspired by you, and that it's profitable in every, every bit of it. And God, it's profitable to our souls today. And so God, help us to believe that. Help us to want. Help us to desire. Help us to, to see God, remove the blinders from our own eyes of our own deception and our own brokenness that we have failed to see. Help us to see that, but more importantly, see your glory in light of it. And God, be moved out as a people, a sent people today, uh, to get your gospel into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, well Jonah is uh, one of the hidden treasures of the Old Testament, uh, despite its familiarity with, uh, with most of us. Most of you, uh, whether you know much about the Bible or not, you've probably heard of Jonah. Unfortunately, it's probably because it was the target of mockery uh, in the classroom you're in, or maybe the target of mockery at work. I remember when I worked in audiology, uh, this was an ongoing mockery and conversation that they were, they were doing, laughing at the, the fact that a fish could swallow a man. Um, it may be because, uh, maybe you, you're familiar with it because the Veggie Tales made a movie of it. Uh, it could be, the, could be as well, right? You say, wait a minute, I like Veggie Tales. I'm not saying Veggie Tales is bad, but they did make something about Jonah. And, uh, and numerous stories uh, have similarities or references to the book of Jonah. Uh, Muhammad claimed to have a revelation of a story strikingly similar to this. Uh, even Greek mythology had a similar story. Uh, Melville uh, makes reference to Jonah in his book Moby Dick. Even Disney had a spin-off version called Pinocchio. And then you consider the artwork. Uh, I did some research on some artwork here of Jonah, and you begin to wonder if there's anything else other than a fish, right? Everyone thinks of Jonah, they think of Jonah and the fish. I'm not quite sure. Those are very vivid there, um, of Jonah being spit out of a some sort of creature, but this is kind of just artwork going on. This is always the thought about Jonah, Jonah and the fish, Jonah and the whale, right? It's always the conversation. But what is Jonah really about? My friends, Jonah, if you've been with us long enough, will know the answer to this question. Number one, Jonah is about, it's about Jesus, right? Jonah is about the gospel. And what we're going to find in Jonah is we're going to find a contrast now, a contrast between the stubbornness and selfishness and struggle of man and the resilience and compassion and mission of God. We find that Jonah, he's our representative in the story. He actually is the antagonist, and God is the protagonist. And like us, Jonah doesn't even realize he is evil, because he is sure that the real evil people in the world are those Ninevites that God is going to be trying to send him to. 
in 2005, there was a film released uh, that made it to number one in the box office. It was called Hide and Seek. Uh, it featured Robert De Niro and, uh, and Dakota Fanning. Now, Robert De Niro's character was named David. He moves uh, with his daughter to upstate New York after his wife dies. And then his daughter develops an imaginary friend named Charlie. And she begins to dialogue with this imaginary friend on a daily basis. Throughout the film, people close to David keep dying. And he's suspicious of his daughter who is acting strangely with this imaginary friend. And the twist of the movie Um, is that while David thinks he's the good guy in the movie, he thinks he's the good guy and would seem to be the protagonist of the story, he finds out by the end of the movie he's not. He discovers that he has a split personality and that he is actually Charlie. What seemed to be the protagonist the whole time through the whole film was actually the antagonist. The one who thought he was the good guy was actually the bad guy all along. And that is exactly what we find in the book of Jonah. Jonah's angry. Jonah is frustrated with God. He's going to be frustrated throughout the book, and you'll see this as we go through. And he felt justified. He felt justified. Look at today. He felt justified in running because he wanted wrath to rain down on the Ninevites. And we'll find out in chapter 4, Jonah did not run because he was afraid of the Ninevites. No, no, that's not why he ran. Jonah ran, and he'll say this, because he knew God, I, know you, you, I knew you would be a compassionate, loving God. I knew you would relent from disaster. And that's why I didn't want to go in the first place, he said. He knew God would be compassionate toward these wicked people. In a very passive-aggressive way, Jonah calls God the antagonist. He sees God as the bad guy here. So let's look at Jonah. Let's examine today his heart. Let's look, take a good long look at what I'll call like maybe the psychology of a runner Right? The mindset of one who, who runs from God, who, who refuses to follow God, or who even abandons the very mission that God puts in front of them. And understand this, that, the, that little Jonah is living all of us. Okay? So before you, you think of your neighbor or your friend or the person behind you in front of you, draw a circle around yourself and realize this morning, okay, I, I have Jonah in my soul. Okay? We all have Jonahs running through us in that way. So let's be careful of that, because this, this, this will actually bring about a great amount of self-discovery, a great amount of revelation of our own souls and our own brokenness, and at the same time will show us the love of God as God brings us to repentance, because you know what? We just don't love what God loves, and that's really what this book's about. God loves what we just don't love. God loves people. He loves broken, hurting, sinful people. And so how do we learn to love what God loves? How do we learn to do that? And here's what we'll look at this morning. This is how we learn to love what God loves. Number one, we need to embrace the mission of God. Number two, avoid the resignation of Jonah. Number three, feel the resilience of God. And lastly, join the awakening of Jonah. All right, number one, embrace the mission of God. Verse one tells us that the word of the Lord came and called out to Jonah. And here we find the call of God to Jonah to move out of his comfort zone of Israel and go to the city of Nineveh. Now, realize Jonah was very comfortable. Um, He was King Jeroboam's prophet, okay? And things were going pretty well. We have a reference, and maybe you didn't know this, there's a reference of Jonah in 2 Kings 14, and here it is, 2 Kings 14, 25. It speaks of the reign of Jeroboam, and he said this, King Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabia, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant to Jonah. There he is, right? 
And so what was going on is that, the, is that Jonah would speak a word from God to the king and tell him about a new expansion program, right? A new, a new area to take over, to make Israel's borders get larger. As a matter of fact, it got one of the largest expansions of territory under the reign of Jeroboam as well as with the prophet Jonah. And so Jonah was used to hearing from God. He was used to hearing God tell him things to convey to the king about a new military expansion or borders or development and then he heard the statement, literally it's, a, get up, the word arise, get up, Jonah, Jonah's, get up. Okay, so he gets up, and what God wants him to do is not slide over to the king and convey some news to him. On the contrary, different than what Jonah's been experiencing his whole life, he wants Jonah to pack up his bags and head to Nineveh to give them news instead. That's a whole different uh, agenda for, for Jonah. Now, why Nineveh? Why, why go there? Because the city was full of people made in the image of God who were broken, whose moral compass, as will be later on in chapter 4, has been hijacked by sin. And God wants to see them come to him. You say, just how broken was Nineveh? Why was, why was Jonah so um, apprehensive about going to Nineveh, knowing that God would be compassionate, knowing that God would relent at the very smallest little hint of repentance? Well, here's why. Here's why Jonah felt that way. He felt they were irredeemable, right? Nahum chapter 3 gives us a little bit of insight on the city. Speaking of Nineveh, it says this, Woe to that bloody city, all full of liars and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. That's a description of the Ninevites, okay? So they, this, was, this is pretty bad. They, matter of fact, hi, historians tell us that the Ninevites would throw out babies to die of exposure, especially females. They would push aside the poor, the wounded, and the weak to die of hunger. They would entertain themselves with kind of gladiator-type games. Archaeology confirms that they, they were well-known for their brutality and their cruelty. And when they captured their enemies, they would sometimes just tear off their lips or their hands, other times they flayed victims alive. They made great piles of their skulls in front of their walls to d- demonstrate just how wicked they were and evil they were and you didn't want to mess with them. Some statements we actually found from the Ninevites, these are, these are uh, found uh, writings, said this. Number one, uh, the first one, quote, I cut off their hands, fingers, and noses and ears and put out their eyes. Another one said, quote, I took their heads and put them on posts around the city. So you can kind of start getting the idea. You're like, okay, um, Jonah may be justified here in not, not wanting to go to this place. And so the Ninevites are tremendously broken, right? Pride is gushing through its streets, and yet God wants to send Jonah to call them to put a stop to it, right? He wants to call them to stop what they're doing. But that wasn't the only reason that God was sending Jonah. Because if that was the only reason you get a misconstrued understanding of the mission of God, it wasn't just to go fix the program, fix the brokenness, fix the injustice, it was also, uh, as he went through the city, it was also because it was full of sinners in need of repentance. It was souls of human beings that were walking these streets that are broken, lost, need grace, love, and the gospel. That's why the book will end with a very important point in chapter 4, verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have compassion and love for Nineveh, the great city, which is more of 120,000 persons? 
You say, Chris, where do you get the idea from this verse about this being a a place that God loves? Well, he calls it here in chapter 1, he calls it a great city, same in chapter 4. So the book ends and begins and ends with the same statement. Nineveh is called that great city. And great means two things. One, big, right? It's a big city. The other is that it's a very important or strategic city. God wanted to send Jonah there because this city was huge. It was teeming with people. Ancient Nineveh was about 220 miles north of present-day Baghdad, 500 miles northeast of Israel. It was the largest city of the ancient world. According to historians, their city walls were eight miles long, enveloped the inner portions of the city. The walls were so thick that they could run three chariots abreast around the walls. Think if, you've, if you're like a fan of Lord of the Rings like I am, think about the big trolls walking across the top, okay? Walls like that, giant walls. It was the rest of the city occupied some 60 miles Later on in the book of Jonah, we'll find it took Jonah three days just to walk through the city, just to get through it. It just tells you how long and how big that city was. But God's concern is not just because of it, not just the military or political size, but soul size of the city. Depending on how we interpret the last verse here, if it's speaking of just men, uh, if it's not speaking of women and children, a lot of times they did not in total numbers of people. We, we may be talking about a city of about a half a million people. God loves the city. Because there are massive amounts of people who are lost there. This is why missions work to the global cities of the world are important, because that's where the highest concentration of lost people are. Think about our our culture. You know this. You've seen this. Cities are growing like no other time in history. 100 years ago, there were only 30% of people lived in cities. Today, 70% of the world's population lives in cities. How different that has gone in 100 years. Before 1950, only New York City had over 10 million people. Today, there are 47 cities with over 10 million people in them. By 2050, they say over 10 cities will have 25 million people, and Mumbai, India, will range close to 50 million people. One city, 50 million people by 2050. Matter of fact, the International Missions Board, which is the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention's kind of uh, missions arm, uh, has a new initiative called Global Cities Initiatives. Maybe you've heard of this. They have targeted four such global cities, and they're encouraging Christians just to move there, start families there, work in those cities, even retire there to start being a part of church plants to see the gospel go forward because the whole world is moving to these locations. This is why God is sending Jonah to Nineveh. That's why he's sending us to our neighborhoods, places of employment, locations around India and around the world. That's why we're going to be doing church planting, as you saw in the video earlier It continues to look at locations and neighborhoods near and far that need the gospel and start churches there. If you're going to love what God loves, my friends, you've got to embrace his mission to spread his love to a lost and dying world. But our story, our narrative, is much like Jonah's, right? Instead of embracing the mission, we run. So number two, avoid the resignation of Jonah. Verse three, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. God told him to, ro- to rise, and he did. He rose, and he went the opposite direction. Jonah's literally resigning as a prophet. He is resolved, literally resolved to not go to Nineveh. Three times, you notice in verse 3 there and 4, three times the word Tarshish is brought up where he's going. Three different times is mentioned to make it clear where he was going. Uh, so he heads down to the shipping docks of Joppa. He gets a one-way ticket to not Nineveh, and he heads west to Tarshish, which was the furthest place in the world. I'll show you a map so you can get an idea of where he's going. Tarshish was in Spain. 
That was, as, that was as far away in the world as I could possibly imagine at the time. He literally just went down to the docks. It wasn't that it was something special in Tarshish. It was like, okay, where is the farthest place in the world I could possibly go? 2,500 miles. It would take him a year to get there on the boat. That's where he was going. That's where he was running. Now, understand that this choice that Jonah is making has a lot of ramifications to it. Not only is it an, an act in kind of a career suicide, it's hard to retain your job as a prophet representing God when you're, when you're running from God. But he's also, as the text will say, he pays the bill. He pays the fare for this trip. And that was an expensive trip. There was no stipend for disqualified prophets, nor were there any discounts given to him on the ship. He probably broke the bank, right, to get a ticket to not Nineveh. He'd have to sell his house, leave everything behind, set off at, at the risk of his own life. Uh, Jonah believes... Bottom line, Jonah believes he has a better idea than God does for his future. He feels he'll be better off. No, this is very important. He feels he'll be better off if he just loved what Jonah loved instead of what God loved. Love the people of Israel? Okay, I could do that. I'm happy to stay next to the king in my plush kind of job here as a prophet and give him some advice and convey to him stuff. I'm good with that. I'm doing ministry. It's good. Go, go to the Ninevites? No, no, thank you. I'm not doing that. And so he feels that he is better off going the other direction. And he probably felt justified in loving what Jonah loved. Think about what Jonah found. He went down to the docks. He found a ship going to the furthest part of the world, to Tarshish. There was room on board for him. The price was affordable. He could pay for it. And the skies were clear, at least at the time. He probably thought, this must be the Lord, right? He, he must be coming to his senses. He must realize his errant ways of trying to send me over to Nineveh, and he's kind of come around to that. Now, that thought we'll get back to in chapter 4 because he thinks the exact same thing later. He feels that God's coming on, come along to him, kind of coming along to what he's thinking. He thinks God's getting his point. Beware of trying to justify your sin and your running from the mission field in front of you. You know, the thoughts of, you know, I'm just, I'm just too busy. When my kids get out of the stage, I'll, I'll be able to engage lost people around me. You know, God, God says to be holy, so I can't be around those kinds of people. That's exactly what Jonah thought. You have one life, my friends, that God has given to you. One life. Do not waste it by busying yourself and padding your life. Take risks to see the gospel go forward around you. Understand, it was a great risk for Jonah to go. It was a great risk. To, it was actually more of a risk to go to, go to Tarshish than it was Nineveh because that was where God wanted him, right? The safest place in the world is to go where God wants you to go, even if it's not the safest place in the world to you. So what was happening to Jonah here? And this is important. I want you to watch kind of internally what's happening to Jonah as he runs away from the mission that God has for him. Notice what happens to him when he decides to love the world more, love what he wants more than what God loves. I love how the Living Bible is a different translation. Put the original language, because original language is, is kind of missed in the ESV in some way. And listen to this, this is a different version, but he, they bring it out. The language uses the word down three times. He went down to the seacoast, to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went down on board, and then he climbed down into the dark hold of the ship to hide there from the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, down on board, down to the ship, to sleep. Down, going down is a euphemism in the Old Testament for death. Jonah's dying with every step he takes away from the will of God, away from the mission that God has for him. You can see every step he takes. Imagine looking at him as he leaves Jerusalem and he takes the 30 miles down to Joppa. You can see his shoulders starting to droop, his, his chin starting to drop, his, his countenance starting to dissipate. You can see him 
just sighing constantly and deeply. Jonah was dying economically. Okay? It cost him everything to do this. He was dying socially. He left all of his family and friends. He's dying vocationally. Of course, he left the prophet work. He's dying emotionally. He gets in the bottom of the boat, and he is depressed. Matter of fact, it is so obvious. If you look at chapter 1, verse 10, it is so obvious that he is depressed and downcast that the, the actual sailors ask him, what's wrong with you? And he says, uh, yeah, I'm running from God. <laughs> he just tells them. But they could read it on his face. They could tell that he was actually deeply, deeply depressed. So why is he doing this? Why is he running? Jonah is trying to find another word, another mission for his life other than God's. You see, once you refuse God's word, once you refuse God's mission for your life, once you, you have to try to find another word, right? Another mission for your life. Jonah's trying to carve out a new identity, a new purpose for himself that doesn't include God. When you do this, you're, you begin this endless, fruitless pursuit of a new word, a new name, a new identity, a new mission for your life. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have this going on right now in your life. You're trying to, to build a life apart from God. And you may sprinkle a little church in there, but the reality is that God has no central part to your life. You don't really love what God loves. You don't really love the people around you. You may not really care about the perishing next door or the ones across the cubicle from you or the ones on your team. Slowly but surely, you're trying out a new name. You're trying out a new word, a new identity, a new mission in life that is void of God. Jonah is trying that. He's trying that new outfit on but it's not going well for him at all. Jonah was not okay. He's trying to run from God in vain. He is resigning because he feels that God is not doing things his way. His way would be let the Ninevites just burn. <laughs> let them destroy, let them die, just bring down fire, wipe them out. Maybe we can take their land. He's good with God as long as he can be comfortable in Israel. He's good with God as long as he does things Jonah's way. He's good with God as long as all that God wants from him is to maybe jump through some religious hoops, but to take risks, to go to a foreign people, to get the gospel out, to trust God with all that process is too much for Jonah. No, I want to stay comfortable, and if you're going to let me stay comfortable, then I'm running. You see, Jonah actually wasn't a good man, even though he had an outward veneer of religiosity, even though he was a prophet. In reality, Jonah as we talked about, it was the wicked man here because his heart was not God's heart. Jonah wanted, above all things, judgment, not mercy. He wanted accolades, not grace. He wanted land and property, but not the souls of men. Jonah could answer Bible questions all day long. He could say he was a sinner, but it hadn't hit him deep down. Has it hit you deep down? You can give all the words and say, oh yeah, no, oh, man, I know I'm a sinner like everybody else. I own up to that. But has it hit you? Has it broken you? Have you come face to face with yourself and seen the brokenness that is inside? You see, deep down, through all the verbiage, Jonah still thought he was a pretty good guy. Or at least he was better off than those Ninevites were, right? At least I'm better than they are. And so Jonah runs. And friends, it's not until you see yourself as not just a sinner, as Paul would say, the sinner, the worst of sinners. Until you see yourself as that, there is no growth, there is no, there's no movement do you see the problem in the world is not them, whoever they are, that you may come up in your mind is the problem with the world? Until you see that the problem is you, you won't really ever see the glory of Jesus. You'll never take risks. You won't really love what God loves. I love some years ago, uh, the Times in the UK posed the question, 
uh, as an as a opinion article and said, quote, what's wrong with the world? And asked a few eminent uh, authors to write essays on it. So they, all these authors came back with all the problems, what's wrong with the world and all of this. And G.K. Chesterton wrote a brief response. This is it. This is all he wrote for his opinion. Quote, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's it. What's wrong with the world? I am. I'm what's wrong with this world. I'm the one that's broken. This is where it starts. True change starts here. G.K. got it. Do you get it? And friends, avoid the resignation of Jonah. Stop running. Stop playing church games. Stop fleeing the mission field that God has put right in front of you at your work and in your neighborhood. You say, you know what, Chris? I'm, I, I hear you, I, I, but I, I'm not resigning. I mean, I haven't fled anywhere. I'm not running like Jonah has run. Do you realize you don't have to run at all to be running? You can run for the mission of God just by staying exactly where you are. Nice, comfortable, safe, padded life, right? Others, they do board a ship. They don't go too far, though, right? They board the ship, and they just circle their mission field. You know, you resign to, to spend all your time on your boat. I'll listen to music, you know, I'll watch some shows, I'll entertain myself to death, be consumed with kids' activities while at the shoreline, just in earshot, are people perishing that you won't even take the time to talk to. Your friends, you're not any different than Jonah. I'm not any different than Jonah. Jonah resides in all of our souls. So we need to embrace the mission of God, embrace the gospel of God, which is found here in the resilience of God. Number three, feel the resilience of God. Jonah is on board the ship now. It has set sail for a year-long trip to Spain. What do you think? You know, don't, don't, don't read the rest of the story, but think. What do you think God is going to do? What is God going to do here? What, what would you do? I, I know what I would do. All right, I, I wouldn't necessarily have the heart of God here. I would, I'd cut ties with Jonah. Fine, you want to run? Go right ahead, right? <laughs> cut my losses, find myself another prophet to deliver my message. I'd let Jonah run to his heart's content, but that is not what God does. He loves Jonah too much to let him go. He loves you too much to let you go. He has a rope, as it were, wrapped around Jonah's waist, and he's only going to give him so much slack. He's only going to give you so much slack. Um, we're, we're currently training our puppy. We have a new puppy. His name is Dodger, which should be shocking to you that I call my puppy Dodger. Um, he just got the, uh, the cone of shame removed recently. Um, he lost his, lost his manhood there, honestly. Um, the other one, I, I didn't know if I needed to talk to him about lung cancer or not because he, he chooses bones like that is how he chews them. But nonetheless, uh, we, we take him outside, and if you've had a puppy, you know how this works, Okay. Jonah, uh, Jonah, he probably could be called Jonah, Dodger, we take him outside and we have a, we have a leash on him, and he, he will eat anything, right? I mean, we're talking leaves, rocks, anything. I mean, anything get in his mouth, get in his mouth, he will just chew on it. And you always have to have the leash on him, and you give him a little bit of slack, you know, and he goes a little bit further, and you have to kind of pull. You know, he follows me wherever I go, he needs to go. It's part of training him. And he would, you know, he tries to dart away, I have to pull it back, you know. I give him a little bit of slack, and I pull him back again. And that's exactly what God is doing here. That's exactly what God is doing with Jonah, right? He's given him a little bit of, of slack. Give him a little bit of slack. That's what Jonah is. He's about to feel, Jonah's about to feel, as it were, the, the tug of God's leash. Some of you have felt God's leash, uh, tug the leash before, haven't you? Some of you are about to feel God's leash being tugged on your soul. But look, look, look at verse 4. The, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. So I, I, maybe you're expecting, you know, a bird to fly by, maybe drop a note on the boat, you know, to Jonah. Maybe a gentle whisper from the ocean breeze, come home, Jonah, come home. Oh, no. 
God knows just how stubborn Jonah is and how stubborn we are. And sometimes it takes a mighty storm to get us to kind of turn around, right? He sends a storm. And it's not just any storm. The text says it's a mighty tempest. This storm is so intense that the sailors completely freak out who are used to storms. So they know this is something from God. And what we find here is that Jonah, is that God has this whole situation under control. He's even incorporating Jonah's rebellion into his sovereign plans. Jonah's sin didn't catch God by surprise. Okay? God is not like, oh man, he actually went down there and he actually got on the boat. Oh man, there he goes. Now what am I going to do? He's halfway across the sea. That's not what's going on. We find in this story, in this book of Jonah, that God is in control of all things. He, uh, he appoints the fish, 117. He appoints a plant in 4.6. He appoints a worm in 4.7. He appoints an east wind in 4.8, all to do his will. He uses great things, small things, catastrophes, and whispers, whatever it takes to get your attention. This is not God showing off. It's deliberate. It is God working to stop Jonah in his tracks. And this is all because he loves Jonah and he loves you. People don't tend to let go of things too easily. They don't tend to let go of their false gods and false saviors too easily. Many times it takes a storm to shake them loose, a a good tug of the leash. It's not a pointless tragedy here. It's a very deliberate move by God, a very deliberate move, which is always the case. God is up to something, and I bet Jonah knew that. And the problem is that Jonah thought thought that God was going to kill him. That's eventually why he says, you know, just throw me overboard. God just wants me dead. The reality is that God's going to save him. It's interesting. But why, does, why, does, why doesn't God just let Jonah go? Why didn't he just let him go? That's what he wants. He wants to run away. He wants to die. Why doesn't he just let him go? Because, again, God loved Jonah, and God wanted Jonah. And he wanted not just Jonah's obedience, but he wanted Jonah's heart. He didn't just want Jonah's creed. He wanted Jonah's soul. He chose Jonah. He determined to send him to Nineveh, kicking or screaming, whichever way he wants to go, which is not only for the glory of God and the, and the good of the people of Nineveh, it's also for the good of Jonah. Do you realize that Jonah needed Nineveh more than Nineveh needed Jonah? Jonah needed Nineveh more than Nineveh needed Jonah. He needed to see. He needed to experience that. This is the only way he would ever get stripped of his pride and his self-salvation pursuits. God knew that his call to Jonah would shake him and send him running, but Jonah needed to be stripped of these false idols. And so God took his election of Jonah very seriously. He would even go so far as to sink the ship if he had to, to get his disobedient prophet Uh, back rather than allow him to go to his own destination build an identity apart from god or adopt a new mission for his life my friends if you are god's child today one who has repented and trusted in christ alone he will not let you go too far you can run but you can't hide the slack will run out the divine leash will be pulled and it is because god loves you okay listen to this john 10 27 29 says my sheep hear my voice i know them they follow me I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father's given to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Listen, Satan tried to pluck Jonah out of God's hand. It didn't, it, he couldn't. Jonah himself tried to pry himself loose, but he couldn't. God's love for you, my friends, went to com- cosmic links to reach you. He sent his Son from heaven to earth to get you, and he is not about to let you go. You must see the resilience of God. This love of God, so that you begin to move and love what God loves. Lastly, number four, join the awakening of Jonah. Verse five, we see these mariners are terrified, and we'll talk more about the fear next week of the mariners. But they're but they're scared. 
And you know, you know it's serious because the sailors all of a sudden get religious, right? You know something's really going on bad now because they're like, okay, we, we need to find some gods to pray out to and fix this problem. The storm rose so quickly, they knew this was a divine act. They didn't know why. I don't know if they started singing, you know, Jesus, take the helm or something, but they, they started tossing, that's a bad joke, they started tossing stuff overboard, right, you know, and, uh, and they're, they're singing worship songs, they're calling out to every god they can imagine. You know, people tend to get very religious at a moment of crisis. But what's going on with Jonah? They're freaking out on top deck, right? They're tossing stuff overboard, they're praying, they're crying out, they're doing all of that. What's Jonah doing? Sleeping. He's sleeping. Isn't it interesting? And I love there's two different words for sleep in the Hebrew there. This is not the word sleep out of just exhaustion, like I'm so tired, right? I need to go to sleep. I'm working all night long. I worked a night shift, and I got to go to bed. It's not that type of sleep, exhaustion. It's actually the same word that used for Adam when he put Adam to sleep. It's actually kind of the idea of anesthesia. The lexicon says it's to snore, to be in a deep sleep, to lie stupefied is the word. It says he was in the farthest corner. I love the language. He was in the farthest corner of the lowest deck. Jonah was dead to the world like he was to God. Nothing mattered anymore to Jonah. Depression from his running has brought him to an all-time low. This is what happens. This is what happens when your identity depends on your job and you lose it. This is what happens when your identity depends on your kids being good and they rebel. This is what happens when your identity is is being seen as an upright, moral person and all of a sudden your reputation gets shot. This is what happens. You fall asleep. You fall asleep. You become immune. You become insensitive. You become callous to the lost world around you. And so verse 6 tells us the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. And the captain goes berserk and he shakes Jonah. He has to shake him to get him to wake up. And it's just, I mean, there's a storm going on, sailors screaming, who knows what up top deck, right? Things splashing overboard. He has to shake Jonah to wake him up. And he tells him, I love this now, he tells him to arise, call out to his God like they were to his. You know? He's like, do, do something. You dance around, shake some bells, clang some cymbals, do yoga, do something. Please do something that's going to get the attention of whatever God it is that you serve. Ironically, the captain is more concerned about the people perishing than the prophet of God. Jonah's lost all feeling. He doesn't love what God loves. He doesn't love people. But something happens here. Jonah does wake up, I think, not just physically, but I think even emotionally or spiritually here. He starts to feel something. As we'll see next week, and starting in chapter 1, verse 7, Jonah's concern for these men start to arise within him. He starts to awaken to what God loves. And I believe it all starts here with the captain's word. Did you notice the captain's words? Do you notice anything similar to God's word to him in chapter 1, verse 2? Arise, call out. Isn't that what God said to him? And he didn't do it. And here the captain is saying exactly, it's exactly the same words. Arise, call out to your God. It was all part of the mission statement that God gave to Jonah. So starting in 1-7, Jonah finally cares about something other than himself. He walks to the top deck. He tells them it's all his fault. And he says to them to throw him in and they'll be saved. Jonah comes to his senses. He starts to feel again. But it doesn't feel like there's any hope for him, right? He feels like he's too far gone. Jonah then obeys what he knows to be true. These sailors don't deserve to die like he does, right? He, he, I'm the reason for this storm. You see what's starting to happen? I'm the, I'm the reason for this storm. I'm the sinner here. It's me, not you. It's me. I'm the one running. Throw me overboard. I can imagine maybe even tears start to well up in Jonah's eyes as chapter 1 verse 13 describes the men trying to save his life by rowing back home. and not throw, They tried not to throw him overboard. That's the last resort. They didn't want to throw him overboard. 
Jonah both saw his sin in the image of God in these men who cared for him when he didn't care for them at all. And so Jonah has himself thrown into the ocean of God's wrath, knowing that is what he deserved. But as we'll find out, spoiler alert here in case you didn't know, God saves him, okay, by a fish. I know it's not the usual knight in shining armor, but it is a fish that saves him. And a few hundred years later, as this story would unfold in the Gospels, God would send his son, Jesus, who would again live the life we couldn't live, die the death we should have died to save us. And Jesus, like Jonah, would plunge himself into the water of God's wrath, but unlike Jonah, Jesus wouldn't be saved. God wouldn't send a fish. God wouldn't send anybody. Jesus would just sink. He would sink under the wrath, the weight of God's wrath against sin, and he would die. And my friends, here's the good news about that. Now that Jesus has plunged himself in and wasn't saved, now you can be saved no matter how far you have gone. We can now jump into the glory and beauty of God and not drown because by faith our sin has been paid for at the cross. That's enough to make any runner come back home, right? It's the smelling salts of the gospel that are going to awaken your soul when you hear that. Now, you can decide to stay on board, and you can seem noble and go down with the ship of your life, or you can throw yourself overboard and be saved. But you have to see there's love under those waves. To stay on board will be to say to God, you know what? I don't need you, nor do I want you. And God will simply say to you, fine, you can have you forever, which we've said. That is what hell is, an eternal not-God existence, an eternal life apart from from God. But I don't believe that's anybody in this room this morning. I don't think anybody in this room this morning is at the point where they're just like, you know, I'm good. I just, I want forever not God. I think deep down in all of your hiding and all of your running, you want to be found. You want to awaken. You want to be saved. And you want to return home. When my kids were really little, uh, they loved playing hide and seek. You have little ones, you know, they love to play that game. And we would, uh, and there's something about the joy of discovery for them, isn't it? And we'd, we'd play this in our house when they were little, and, and they'd, they'd go high, you know, high, and I'd count to 20, you know. And, uh, and by the time I was about to 20, I could hear rumbling, you know. I, I knew where they were. <laughs> you, could hear, you could hear where they were. And sometimes if I waited long enough, I'd even hear from a distant room, I'm in here, come find me. You ever had this? And you see, the, the better they hid, and the longer it took me to find them, as it were, the more they were itching at the desire to be found, right? They just wanted to be found. I believe that's you this morning. And the further you run into sin, really deep down, the more you want God to find you, to rescue you. My friends, God is saying to you this morning, I see you. I know where you are. I know where you've run to. I hear you, and he'll save you. Just say, I'm here. God, I'm stuck. I am the protagonist here, right? I'm, the, I, I'm, I'm not the protagonist. I'm the antagonist here. I'm the problem with this world. It's not them. It's not anyone else. It's not my mom. It's not my dad. It's not my family. It's not my kids. It's not my neighbor. It's not my, my employer or my employees. It is me. I own that, God. It is me. And I know you love me because you sent Jesus to die to rescue me, and he'll rescue you. God is not pretentious. He will take you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, and no matter what little you have left of your life. I love C.S. Lewis put it this way in The Problem of Pain. He said this. He calls this, he says, I call this divine humility. Because it's a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down under us. A poor thing to come to him as a last resort. To offer up our, our own when it's no longer worth keeping. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms, but he's not proud. He stoops to conquer. 
He will have us, even though we have shown what we prefer, that we prefer everything else to him and come to him because there's nothing better now to be had, he'll still have you. If you have nothing left to give, if you felt like you've run so far or you have very little of your life left, he will still take you if you're willing to admit that it's all a loss. Remember Paul would say that? I count it all as loss. Everything, all my credentials, all of my church attendance, all of my morality, all my good works, I'm considering it all a loss if I may gain Christ. You can have that this morning. You can have that. Jonah resides in all of us. So no matter where you are today, if you are lost apart from Christ, he will take you. My friends, if if you're in Christ this morning and you have run from the mission of God he's put in front of you, if you've run from the people that God has for you, you know God has given you very specific people in your life that I believe only you can reach. They're around you. They're your family. They're your neighbors. They're your coworkers, right? It's those people that are around you that God has given to you. Don't run. Don't stand still. <laughs> Don't be immune, right? Run to, run to God. Run to them. Embrace the mission and repent and follow Christ. As we go to communion, it's a good opportunity to take the time. If you don't know Christ, lay down the, raise the white flag, right? Surrender. Come to him. If you're a believer today, you're welcome to come to the communion table. But as you do, as you sit down, as you reflect, think about your heart for people. Do you have Jonah's heart or do you have God's heart? Right? Think about that. Reflect on who it is that God has put around you. Ask God, and Colossians 4 would say, to God, open up a door for me that I may, that I may present the gospel. Let me build these bridges to relationships to, to, to see people come to know Christ around me. Ask him. Ask him that question. Ask him to do that. He will open, I promise you, he will open doors for people. You just got to open your eyes and see them. They're all over the place. And when you're ready, if you've reflected, as you have talked to God, you may come to the tables, bread, juice. They represent, remember, they rem- they're remembrance of the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. There'll be people to pray for you. Come see them. I know we, uh, Justin said this thing last week. Th- they're here to pray for you. You got lost people in your, in your family, in your life, around you that you want, let them pray with you for them. It's a great opportunity to do that. Don't be embarrassed. It's up front. Like I said, we're all broken. We're all in need of prayer, okay? So don't feel like, oh, I don't know, I can't, I can't go stand up there and pray with somebody. Someone might see me. Repent of your pride, okay? Have someone help you. Have someone pray with you. I'll be around the back and front as well. You can see me as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the book of Jonah. God, we sadly admit that we both individually, corporately, have run from you in so many ways. We've run from the mission that you've had for us. We're comfortable doing the things that you've called us to do that cause us not to take risks, that cause us to just do our thing that we've always done, go to church, do a ministry thing, serve in some capacity. But God, when you ask us to go to a lost and dying world, when you ask us to do the uncomfortable thing by befriending people around us that don't know you, by being around them, loving on them, serving them, and talking to them about Christ, that's a, that's a big risk. And we're scared. God, I ask that you would embolden us with the gospel. I pray that you would help us know that, God, you've got us. You're holding the leash. You're not going to let us go too far. You will keep us. You will guide us. You will open those doors. Do that, God, we ask in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.